As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Mo Salah's new Liverpool deal. Should they celebrate or does Mo's money mean Mo problems? Other transfer news with Jesus confirmed and CR7 about to do one run. We preview the Women's Euro Championships, the hits, the misses. We get another favourite World Cup and inverting the pyramid scheme. We hear about the cash-in and the crash-in of football's crypto love affair. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, it's Monday the 4th of July, Independence Day, and in the podcast today, got Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Good morning, James. All right, Raphael Honigstein's with us as well. Hello, Rafa. Hello. As is Flo Lloyd Hughes. Hello, Flo. Hello. Excellent. Flo, you're a buzz at Mo Salah's signing video, uh, live from the kind of terrace of his place at Mykonos. The thing that I was most confused about was the fact that he didn't already follow... Liverpool on Twitter, I hmm. think that's that's a bit shocking to me. So that was what my main takeaway from the whole entire thing, really. Okay, good. Anybody else got any hot takes? Grace Robertson pointing out that the whole scrolling through Twitter motif was a throwback to his original original signing announcement, which was an altogether more modest affair uh, when he arrived from from Roma. Nice detail that. Uh, we'll be talking about the, the Mo Salah signing and its significance later on with a bit of transfer chat. But here's a listener question. It's from Simon King. He says, what's with all the retro World Cup chat on the last pods when you could be talking about some current football like, I don't know, previewing the women's Euros, which start in less than a week? Simon may not actually speak that way, but I found it amusing to employ that voice. We did, didn't we? We did some Euros previewing. We did, exactly, flow, And we can't do it in every single show, but we are going to do it in this one. Because Euro 2022 starts on Wednesday with England-Austria at Old Trafford, a sold-out Old Trafford. It's going to be a very special occasion. Tournament will end on the 31st of July with the final at Wembley. Hopefully no one with a firework up there us this time. Who's going to be there? What to look out for on the way? What are we most looking forward to seeing? We'll get our thoughts for you, Simon, next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right then, Euro 2022. Uh, Danny, you've done a big preview on this in, in the eye. Yes. And Flo, you're up on this. And, and Rafa, I imagine you're agog to see if Germany can add to their incredible tally of, what is it, eight titles in ten tournaments? Yeah, either that or three quarterfinal exits in a row. Right. <laughs> wow. We shall see. But let's start with the Lionesses, who are... Am I right, Flo, the second favourites and kicking things off on Wednesday against Austria? What an occasion that's going to be. When it comes to the, the betting odds, the, the second favourites, I think a lot of people would put them down as the favourites and most of the opposition managers are talking in the build-up, saying that they're the favourites, I think, trying to put a little bit of pressure on. But they, they pro it's probably justified, to be honest. They are now 14 games unbeaten under Srini Vigman, who came in in September, They've not only won some games very comfortably, like the World Cup qualifiers, which most of them have been pretty one-sided, but they've also beat some better sides, some more competitive sides pretty confidently as well. So I think that, that label is justified and it's a home tournament. So I think there's always added pressure 
But the, the, the team that are the sort of number one favourites are Sweden. But there is a nice little group, I think, behind Sweden and England of Spain, Germany, Norway, uh, France, who are all probably in with a, a decent shout. So it's going to be a very competitive and tight tournament. It's only 16 teams, which means it's pretty brutal knockout football. Mm. Daniel, who, who have you got down as the biggest threats to, to England? I think England are deserved favourites, but Flo's absolutely right. It's, it's hard to imagine a more competitive tournament. You, know, you look at those odds and there are basically six teams within kind of eight or nine to one or lower of which Germany are one. I, I don't think they are anywhere close to winning this one. But when the very fact that German Germany are probably sixth favourites shows you how competitive that women's international football has become in Europe. Spain are... Spain, about three months ago, Spain were kind of bookies' favourites and everyone was kind of, you know, the Barcelona thing and was assuming that they would win this tournament. That seems to be slightly scaled back now, I think, that it maybe it's one tournament too early for them. But yeah, I mean, Netherlands, France, Germany, Spain, it's, it's remarkable. Mm. Spain are in a tough group, of course, with Germany and Denmark and Finland. Rafa, that's Group B. Hugely inconsistent under current coach Martina Vostecklenburg. Yes. Yeah, they've been they've been poor, really, by their own historic standards. Um, as we said earlier, two two quarter final exits in the last two big competitions, and there is a strange sort of mixed uh, emotion uh, mindset going into this tournament because they beat Switzerland in the last friendly seven nil, and there's this sense of okay maybe this this is all coming together we've got some real firepower up front we've got really good depth that's something that they talk a lot about in the camp that they have players like Eula Brandt who can come from from the bench to have a real impact uh, in the forward positions they have lots of variety and lots of choice but defensively they've looked very shaky and even against Switzerland allowed uh, quite a few dodgy situations and because the group is so unforgiving and is also arranged in a way that the weakest opponent only comes last, by which end, by which time it might be too late. It's sort of anything can happen. Uh, some people are saying, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if Germany get knocked out uh, in the group stage, and others are saying if we if we get through the group stage, maybe they can go on and win the tournament. So it's a uh, yeah, as I said, it's a sort of strange dynamic going into it, but. Reasons to be optimistic, but also reasons to be pessimistic at other ends of the pitch. Okay. Germany's tournament will begin Friday, 8 o'clock against Denmark. Night before that, Thursday, Norway will be taking on Northern Ireland, the uh, lowest-ranked team in the tournament. What about Norway's prospects, Flo? Yeah, they've definitely emerged uh, in the last couple of months as as real contenders because uh, Ada Hegerberg, who won the was the first woman to win the Ballon d'Or. I think it was in 2018, I think. Um, I can't actually remember what year she won it first. But yeah, she was the first woman to win it. And um, she's been out of the Norway setup for almost five years around a dispute with the Federation, around kind of players' rights. It wasn't, it wasn't specifically only about pay, but that was part of it. But before this tournament kind of kicked off and only at the start of this year were there rumours that she was coming back to Norway and then in, in about March, April time she finally announced that she would be returning. She has been out of the game as well. She had an injury so she was out for 16 months uh, with, with an ACL injury and then kind of other uh, problems after that big injury um, but she's come back to form really quickly. Uh, she played a key part in Lyon absolutely smashing Barcelona and shocking a lot of people in the Champions League final in May and she comes into this tournament full of confidence. I think she's going to want nothing more than to spoil England's party and being in the same group with them is brilliant. Norway got smashed by England at the last World Cup which uh, Hagerberg didn't feature him, but they've also got Gura Wrighton, who comes coming off the back of a very good season for Chelsea. Moran Mieldo, who's had some injury problems. Caroline Graham Hansen, who's one of the best players in the world. Um, they've got a very solid squad. So I think they are they're by far England's biggest challenge in that group, but also uh, could put on a lot of pressure on England if, say, that opening game against Austria isn't the emphatic big win that lots of fans will be hoping. That second game against Norway could be quite a sort of high-pressure situation for them. Why did Hegerberg come back? Did she win concessions from the Norwegian FA? 
Yes. Uh, I mean, no one went into the specifics of it, but in her press conference when she returned, she said she was basically satisfied after having conversations with the Federation. I think Norway are one of the federations who have signed some sort of equal pay agreement. So we've seen lots of that in the recent years. Most national federations have been signing it. Spain announced theirs recently. But when you dig into it, a lot of it doesn't necessarily mean equal pay. It's like equal bonuses or equal appearance fees. It's not necessarily like for like. So I think no one really knows exactly what the agreement was. Uh, and that was just before Hegerberg returned. But she essentially in her press conference said, I am now satisfied what that means. I don't really know. But I think it took a lot of persuading from the national team coach, from the federation, probably from her teammates. Um, and Madly, she's only 26 still, so she could have been thriving in that national team setup for the last few years, but she lost so much time, but she still does have quite a lot of time to hopefully achieve still some stuff with that national team. But whether it's the end of that dispute, who really knows? Okay. A lot of people are very excited about Norway's prospects with her return. Uh, other things to look out for this week. Wow, Saturday's game between Netherlands and Sweden, which is two of the top four in, in, in the world, looks like a sizzler, Dan. Yeah, it does. I'm going to 11 games in 13 days, and I think that's the one I'm most looking forward to. Netherlands are in a slightly odd position at the moment in that you know they got they obviously got hammered by England in the friendly, although it wasn't completely first-choice team and it wasn't entirely reflective of the game as a whole. But that will have caused some, I suspect, some sort of slight dismay. The, the group draw they've got is, I think Netherlands and Sweden will progress through pretty easily. It just depends on who finishes top, but who finishes top will matter because they'll probably play France in the quarterfinal if you finish second. So that is a, a mass. It's almost like a round of 16 game, it feels like. So everyone seems to be really backing Sweden. I'm not quite as... I think Netherlands might beat them. I just think that that front three, we know Miedemar is is outrageous. 94 international goals at the age of 25, which is just obscene. I, yeah, I just think Netherlands are... I don't know. I'm prepared to egg on FaceTime, but I think Netherlands will win that group ahead of Sweden. Mm. All right. Switzerland recently smashed by Germany, as Rafa was mentioning, and Portugal, the other two teams in that group. Portugal, who only got the call up when? About a month ago to replace Russia? Yeah, I think it was April. Um, I'm not sure why it took so long. I feel like UEFA could have made that decision fairly swiftly because they did for other competitions, as did FIFA. But for some reason, it took... A very long time for Portugal to be announced, so much so that they're not actually in the Panini sticker book, sadly. Uh, you no have way. to order directly. I've actually got mine here somewhere. Um, you have to order directly from Panini. It's just a blank page in that group and you have to order directly from Panini and they will send you the whole set. But they don't have any of the names. They don't have any of the logos or anything because it took you away for so long. Portugal couldn't feature in the sticker book, which I think is a massive shame because... I know Rachel Furness, who plays for Northern Ireland and Liverpool, being in that sticker book was one of her all-time greatest achievements. She was so excited to, to feature. So I think if you're a footballer, not everyone gets to feature because they don't have the entire squads in there, but if you're a footballer, featuring in a Panini sticker book must be, I don't know, I think that would be a career peak for me. So I do feel for the Portuguese players not being able to have that. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Okay, we heard what Dan's most looking forward to, Netherlands, Sweden. What about you, Rafa and Flo? What, what have you got ringed in red in your diary for the first week or so? Well, Germany-Spain has been the key um, matchup for the men's team uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. And Germany believe that as far as the women's team is concerned, they will have a really hard time, but this might be the key game one way or the other, if they get through that, if they get through this possession play that, that Spain plays so well and survive the group, then they've got a really good chance of going far. But it could also be the game where everything goes south, in uh, not in geographic terms. Indeed. Flo? Yeah, that's probably the neutral. I would say hipster's choice, but it's not really really hipster. It's just by far the best probably matchup in the entire Brentford group is a hipster, though, so in that sense. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and it's, a, it's at Brentford Stadium, which I think is another hipster's choice. So it's like a matchup of the two hipsters' worlds colliding and one of the few games in London as well. I think that England-Norway game, uh, which is their second game, that's in 11th July in Brighton, another brilliant stadium, I think that's going to be a really, really interesting game. And I think for England to be challenged that early on could be great or it could be uh, 
uh, could be quite bad for them. So I think it'll be interesting to see how how uh, how they match up. Excellent. Well, we'll be keeping across it here on the Totally Show. Daniel reports will be there on the eye. And Flo, there's also uh, a daily dedicated uh, podcast from The Athletic. Yes, The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is going to be going daily. There's going to be lots of brilliant guests, including former England players, the likes of Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee. Uh, Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper, as usual, will be providing all the updates. And myself and Charlotte Harper as well are going to be reporting on the tournament, as will Katie Wyatt. We'll be covering England and a few other teams as well. And there's a big roster of writers who will be going up and down the... Uh, the aisles uh, to cover to cover the tournament. One hundred percent flow. By the way, if you're similarly excited about stickers for this tournament, but don't have your album yet, and would like to receive two albums with a box of fifty packets of stickers, then uh, follow the Athletic UK on Twitter, and you'll be in with a chance of winning said prize, and also having to work around something for Portugal. Excellent. Very good. And next up on this Totally, we're getting on to transfers. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Salah stays. There you go. That's how the nation learned last Friday that Mo Salah will be staying at Liverpool. The 30-year-old trousering a new deal worth north of £350,000 a week. Shattering Liverpool's pay structure. Did he play them, as Gary Neville suggested on social media, or as his manager Jurgen Klopp put it, are the players' best years still to come? What do you think, Rafa? It's a strange comment from Gary Neville because this is a player who's still in his prime. We saw how incredibly fit he is. He rarely misses games. If he does, it's only for a week or two. He doesn't have any serious injuries since arriving at Liverpool. His physique is phenomenal. It hasn't stopped scoring. And they're not signing him aged 35 or 33. They're signing him aged 30. So three more years, mm. I think, is is a great deal. And even the money, by the standards of what the best clubs in Europe pay, the equivalent of £18 million, £21 million Euros, is actually not that much. That is sort of the entry level of superstar players. But at Barcelona, you would expect to earn 30 million euros a year, not so long ago. Ronaldo will earn double, if not three times that money at United at the moment. So there is no real, I think, way of of dressing this up as anything but a good thing for for Liverpool, Mm -hmm. Um, irrespective of your your allegiances. um, I think it's a great deal. I think it's unexpected to a certain extent. I think there was almost a couple of years ago a sense of maybe we will have to leave him because we will not be paying him 50 or 60 million euros a year if Real Madrid come calling or Barcelona at the time. But because things have a little bit shifted with the way that the Spanish clubs operate and especially um, not that much of a market, I think, for him right now this summer, it's worked out brilliantly for Liverpool. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the Neville comment is strange to me because I think the one the one thing about the timing of this new deal is that it sort of suggests that Salah's had to make the call in the end because there isn't, as Rafa says, there isn't an obvious market for him now. Five years ago, there would be at least three or four clubs from outside the Premier League who would be able to afford his wages and might well want to. And now, realistically, the only club you could see him joining is Manchester City. Uh, and I don't think, they need him or would want him right now. So it, it was a pretty obvious answer in the end. I think the only, the only question for Liverpool is whether this provokes uh, from, from a Virgil van Dijk or from Alisson or from Fabinho or from whoever to say, well, 
if Liverpool are now prepared to go at that, we don't necessarily expect to match it, although my agent might want me to, but maybe I do expect another pay rise. Maybe this kind of marks a, a, a different era of Liverpool in terms of their wage structure as a whole, because it's quite rare to have one player on big money and nobody else wanting to match that, particularly if if those other attackers Liverpool have brought in match Salah's performance next season. But it's a pretty nice problem to have if you're Jurgen Klopp. And I think what Daniel said is key. I think if there is an acceptance in the dressing room that Salah is worth the money and it doesn't create envy, it doesn't create a pressure for, for wages to go up, but everyone sort of realises, OK, this is a special case. He is our Messi. He is our Lewandowski. He is our uh, maybe Ronaldo in the past. Yes, we'll put up with it. And from what I've read from our excellent Liverpool reporters so far on The Athletic, I suggest that within the dressing room from senior players, there's strong support for this and a sense that the club should and did go out of his way to to keep him and that that was the right thing for the team. So as long as that is maintained and as long as, as he plays at a level where nobody thinks, oh, you know what, he's overpaid or why is he not pulling his weight being paid so much, then we don't have a problem. I think in an ideal world, Klopp would have liked to be have all his players on a similar level but I think there is probably a, has been a realization uh, both at FSG and and with him as well if he hadn't thought so before that sometimes you have to you have to make one or two exceptions mm. all right well elsewhere uh, today Monday has seen Arsenal announcing the signing of Gabriel Jesus from Man City Man City meanwhile have confirmed the arrival of Calvin Phillips Cristiano Ronaldo Rafa, we've seen Bayern Munich mentioned his dispatches since he let it be known that he would like to head out of Old Trafford. Is that a serious thing? Would Bayern consider the 37-year-old? No, I don't think it's in their plans. Uh, they were contacted, it's right. Cristiano Ronaldo has been offered to, to a number of clubs even before the, the latest news broke that he wants to leave. Bayern it's my understanding, have looked at this for a very short amount of time and have realised that uh, replacing uh, 33-year-old Lewandowski with a 37-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo really is not the way forward, especially with Julian Nagelsmann having had some differences with Lewandowski because he was too static for Nagelsmann's liking in his positioning. So, you know, you, you put one and one together and... It's not the, the, the most obvious route for Bayern to go down to. And they've never had that superstar player either, that absolute world, world-class player, you know, one of the three uh, of the best, with the possible exception of, of Rummenigge until 1984. And it's not really within the teams and the club's sort of makeup, I think, to accommodate a player uh, of this kind of nature. So, no, that's not going to happen. Well, various other clubs, ranging from Chelsea to more surprising choices like Roma have been mentioned as possibly being in Ronaldo's future. What do you think? Is he? Is anyone going to make a move for him after the impact he's had at the last two clubs he's been? Or do you think he'll still be there pouting perhaps at Old Trafford next season? I think he may be only because I don't think very few places are going to want to take on those wages for such little return. Um, beyond massive marketing opportunity. I don't think he's going to really contribute that much to a team at the moment. But what Manchester United do with him, I don't know. Perhaps he needs to follow in the footsteps of Gareth Bale and head over to MLS, but I don't think he sees himself there. I don't know. It's it, it's a, it's a strange time, I think, for those sorts of players who are kind of still got some sort of aura around them, but don't really have anywhere to actually play a part in a, in a team properly. I'm guessing his the leak from his or from Gestafute's end is is because there doesn't seem to be much of a market. So they're trying to accelerate things by putting pressure on United to, because he's still under contract. So Manchester United, it's not just about him accepting a contract offer. That club probably also has to pay a fee for him, which if you're then giving him massive wages, you don't really want to pay much for a 37-year-old footballer. So I suspect it was to try and lean on Manchester United to work on a deal where he leaves without a transfer fee. But if he says he wants Champions League football and that's the reason for leaving, then he's going to have to compromise on the wages because there isn't anyone. You know, Napoli would be 
foolish to even try and <laughs> match. I don't know where the, the Napoli story comes from. No, the, the Chelsea one has, I suppose, has some logic in that Todd Burley might want to lay down a marker of, you know, this is my ear and I'm bringing in a, you know, but if he, if he talks to anyone else, and I assume that includes Thomas Tuchel, I can't see how Thomas Tuchel would, for, for exactly the same reason Rafa's saying about Nagelsmann in terms of the static striker, the reason that Romelu Lukaku didn't work out at Chelsea is because he was too static as a centre forward. So are you really going to get Ronaldo in to do that? I don't I don't see the point. I don't see that there's a market for him. And his, his leaking is very deliberate. He's saying, I do not want to be at Manchester United next season, which is a massive problem for them because he made, I don't think he made the team any better. I think, in fact, I think he made it worse, but you still have to replace the goals. And if you've got a player you don't want, it's, it's a pretty rotten situation for a new manager. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we'll have ample opportunity perhaps to talk about that as the season approaches. Rafa, is Lewandowski then leaving from what you're saying? It certainly sounds like that's the case at Bayern. And is it Barcelona? Have they, with their various kind of right sellings, now put themselves in a position to afford him? Well, that is the question because Bayern have um, apparently told Barcelona, uh, we don't want any instalments because we're not sure you're going to be around in one or two years' time. We want all the money, upfront cash. And that is just one of the sticking points. I think that despite some of the protestations, and you might have heard what Uli Hoeneß, the honorary president, has said you know, about Bayern not, not giving in or stuff, there has actually been a tacit acknowledgement within the team that uh, the best thing for all parties is for Lewandowski to go because you don't want a disgruntled Lewandowski um, playing one more year. And there's been, I think, significant unrest within the dressing room about his his behaviour um, over the last few weeks to suggest that it would be best for him, for him to leave. But Bayern have played a high game stakes of poker and there is a problem if uh, Barcelona not so much call their bluff, but actually fold because their own hand is so weak. Uh, but then Bayern, instead of winning the pot, sort of left holding not very much in their hand either um, because they don't, I think, really would be... They, they wouldn't be that happy, I think, if, if Lewandowski ultimately stayed for the reasons I said. But if, if, if Barcelona have real problems getting anywhere closer to the 50 million euros that Bayern want and the conditions we talked about, then, then it might be a problem. I still think that the most realistic scenario is Lewandowski going to Barcelona. I think there will be a way for this to to happen. The clock is ticking as well because on the 12th of July is when Bayern return and Lewandowski has has apparently asked Barcelona to sort this. He doesn't want to uh, come back to Bayern. I don't think he wants to stay out saying, pretending there's a reason why he's not coming back. He wants this all sorted. Um, So that leaves, what, uh, 11 days? No, sorry, my math's terrible. Um, That leaves eight days until until this is supposed to happen. Lewandowski has a market, um, of course. There was a big interest from PSG not long ago, uh, which might be might be um, rekindled, although how he fits in in that dressing room with, with the lineup that they're doing, I don't know. I don't know what sporting director Kylian Mbappe thinks about him either. Um, there's um, a chance that uh, Chelsea, who were interested a couple of years ago, uh, might come back for him. Um, Tuchel, I'm sure, would, would appreciate Lewandowski up front. So that that is one to watch. But I think Barcelona still is the overwhelming favourite to land. OK. Tuchel would welcome him issues over his staticness uh, notwithstanding. I had some questions about this, actually. Jan de Vossenmurdena uh, asking how damaging this is to, to Bayern. And what's it going to be like for them trying to replace his, what, 40-odd goals a season? A lot of pressure there on Nagelsmann. And yes, but, that's the Twitter handle, says, my son, who's 12 years old, says Bayern could win the league without any manager at all. Is he actually wrong? I'm not 100% sure he is. What do you think, Rafa? <laughs> well, you might say that they tried to win it without manager, Niko Kovac, and they, and they succeeded. But no, I don't think it's possible. Um, keeping that dressing room in check, I think, is 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 a real battle at times and uh, not one no one being there I think would would make things very very difficult uh, it is true that Bayern have a, a strong uh, dressing room culture and they sort of uh, organize themselves and motivate themselves to a large extent and of course they are superior than everyone else uh, in in terms of individual and collective quality so yes there's a huge head start 
but having no manager at all, or indeed uh, Jesper's 12-year-old son in charge, I think things would go pretty badly pretty quickly. Mm. I'm not sure if uh, Jesper's son would be taking over the reins, but uh, it's it's certainly an option. Uh, Aklav Hanif on the Bundesliga front says, what a ruthless move by Dortmund sacking Marco Rosa, who was highly rated after his time with the other Borussia to bring back his predecessor, Edin Terzic. Yeah, I don't know if it was that ruthless because they, I think they would have still been prepared to give him another season, Marco Rosa. But then in the uh, big debrief, uh, things got a little bit uh, heated and Rosa got to the point where he said, basically, well, if you don't have the full confidence in me, you might as well tell me now and then I don't do it next year. And uh, at that point, they were also staring apparently at their own shoes and no big speeches were forthcoming. And then the next day decided to leave. Uh, effectively. So I, I don't think it, it was necessarily ruthlessness, but the problem was always thus. Because Edin Terzic was still in the club and he was so popular, you know, former fan, Borussia person through and through, who led Borussia to the uh, German FA Cup victory the season before. And he, because he was still there, he was always the the fallback option. He was always the the guy that could come in. And I think that made it easier for Dortmund to say, you know what, we're not quite sure if you're not quite sure either, then you might as well go because they had a ready-made replacement there already. Mm. That was the big difference compared to the Favre years, for example, where for years they were always thinking, actually, this doesn't work out, but we don't know who else we can get in. So let's give Favre another year. This time was different. And there's a tremendous sense of optimism and, and excitement at Dortmund because Terzic, I think, they're hoping can be a sort of a mini Klopp type figure um, not just on the pitch, but also bringing uh, the club and the players and, and, and the stadium and the fans, everything together again. Because there's been a little bit of sort of a disenchantment over the last uh, two or three years. And uh, with Terzic, there's, there's hope that um, it'll be bad. And Dortmund have looked very good in the transfer window as well so far, bringing in the likes of Schlotterbeck and Zule. And of course, uh, Sebastian Allaire up front, mm. uh, Oshan as well, really interesting player for midfield. There's talk of them signing David Raum, the new Germany left back as well from Hoffenheim. So they're having a very strong window so far. Okay, although there was one one notable outgoing, as as I recall. But but yes, good. Looking forward to that new season of Bundesliga. We'll get some more listener questions and some on this day and World Cup fun next. Question from Chenar Gafur. What is the effect of World Cup on summer transfer window? Bit sparse with your articles there, Chenar. Rafa? There is an effect because players are slightly more reluctant uh, to move perhaps than they otherwise would be. Mm. Um, You move in the summer after the competition is over, of course, and then you have two more years to find your feet before the next competition comes up. This time, if you move now, and I know of at least one player who had a big offer and, and turn it down um, from from the Bundesliga. If you don't immediately hit the ground running, there's only one set of um, internationals to go before the World Cup squads are announced. If you're sitting on the bench in September, you might not make the cut. So it has a hugely, well, maybe not hugely, but it has, it has an effect in as much as that players would be slightly more careful than they always would be in the summer. We could call it the the Raheem Sterling dilemma this summer because I think if in the situation he's in in that Manchester City squad and they are prepared to let him leave if he wants to get more regular time, I think if, if the World Cup was summer, I think he would probably join Chelsea certainly in the week, 10 days after that tournament finished. Now, he that may well still happen, but he must be thinking, well, maybe I'm better playing 80% of Manchester City's games in the first half of that season and almost guaranteeing that I'm in Gareth Southgate starting 11 in, at the World Cup. If he starts badly at Chelsea, particularly given his history with those supporters, if he starts badly at Chelsea and has a, say has a bad August, mm. it's quite easy to see him suddenly falling a little bit down the England queue. Do incoming strikers have a much of a tradition of starting badly at Chelsea, <laughs> falling out with supporters? Sorry, Rafi, you wanted to... Yeah, I mean, conversely, of course, there'll be one or two players who look for a move especially for that reason. Mm. I think somebody like uh, Gabriel Jesus was probably more adamant to go this summer to to make sure he gets much more game time um, at, at Arsenal than, than he did at City. 
And I think it's going to be interesting and, and exciting for all of us to see just how motivated players are in August and September. I think it's going to be going at it full pelt because they don't have much time. When it comes to October, there is, I think, a worry among some coaches that the intensity will drop as players will look reasons not look for reasons not to get injured and not play through the pain, um, not to miss out on on the World Cup. But yeah, it should make for a really interesting dynamic. All right. And the January transfer window following on from the World Cup should be lit. All right. Anubhav Sakdeva, Sakdeva says, are we going to get fully automated offside decisions coming to you on this flow? wherein the referee gets a buzz on his watch as soon as the offence occurs as the next step after the semi-automated VAR checks at the World Cup. You'll have seen, no doubt, that the automation, it's going to be happening in real time, the decision-making. In fact, the semi-automated offside thing is going to involve a sensor in the ball, I believe I'm right in saying. Yeah, I watched the video on this and I don't fully understand how it works. All right, then. And I feel like ever since technology has been introduced in football, the most frustrating thing or the thing that people get so obsessed with about VAR is how so much of the context is subjective of particular decisions like penalties and offsides sometimes as well. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to remove some of that from this. Um, I think technology has worked best in football when it is just goal line technology and there's a very right. clear kind of yes or no I think it's going to be still quite hard to automate these decisions but I look forward to seeing how they might be able to do it uh, but I think it's going to be very controversial and people are going to po- probably be talking about it and writing about it loads brilliant look forward to that <laughs> Uh, Nature Boy wants to know what the decision to move the next AFCON to January February again means for the tournament uh, Daniel in a sentence they picked it in the summer in the Ivory Coast's rainy season where they quite often get seven or eight hours rain a day, which meant they were never going to have a choice but to move it at some point. They, they mm. kept up the charade for a while and then yesterday said it would be moving to January, February. Basically, they, they, they came under pressure to move AFCON to the summer to match the European calendar, and which is fine, but it means that you can't have it in massive parts of Africa at that time because there's a, the weather just doesn't allow it. so you, you either give up and just have it in North Africa and very Southern Africa or you keep up this charade of saying we'll have it in the summer and then shift it to the January February right does it does mean it does mean quite amusingly that the 2020 AFCON was in 2020 no sorry the 2021 AFCON was in 2022 and now the 2022 AFCON is going to be in 2023 I think well, right. no I haven't it's the 2023 AFCON is going to be in 2024 so it's yeah, it's fairly nonsensical, but they haven't really got a way around it. Right. Hopefully they'll get all the teams in the Panini sticker book though. Anyway, England are European under nineteen champions after their three one victory in the big final in Slovakia over Israel. Delap emerges with the ball and Delap and Ramsey hammers it in. And England are surely champions. The Israelis took the lead actually with a fantastic goal from Oscar Gluck. But the young Lions roared back 3-1 in extra time. Daniel, you watched this. It was very similar to the to the semi, actually, against Italy in that they played pretty poorly first half or one goal down and then roared back, as you say. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a team that's packed with talent. It's also a team for which that whole pathways argument is going to be really interesting again because... Probably the best players in that squad are, are Callum Doyle and Liam Delap at Manchester City are... Harvey Vale at Chelsea, uh, Gerald Cansar is at Liverpool, Dane Scarlett at Spurs. <laughs> it's very hard to see how these the, players... The can... Villa boys? Yeah, the Villa boys, who who probably have better cause than most to be optimistic about pathways. But then your side, you know, your manager has just signed Philip Coutinho and Vivaka Kamara this summer, and there are already very good players there. It's, it's so hard now to see those pathways, but hopefully they get them because they're a phenomenally talented squad. You look at the squad from that won it in 2017 and Reese James and Mason Mount and Aaron Ramsdale are the are full England internationals now from that under-19 squad and, and Brereton and, and Lucas Nemecha are, are internationals for other countries. So they, ha- they did really well from that 2017, but 
2017 was an exceptional year in that England youth group teams won pretty much every tournament, which kind of created this buzz that there had to be pathways from that. It will be interesting to see if that continues now. Yeah, and similarly, England women's under-19s, although it wasn't as uh, as fruitful, uh, they got knocked out of the women's Euros in uh, Czech Republic uh, out of the group stage. They won their opening game against Norway, but lost the second game against Sweden and then lost to Germany yesterday 3-0, which means they won't get out of the group, um, which is a shame. Similarly, a, a you know, exciting and talented group, but it just shows, I guess, the strength of, of football on the continent at the moment. And there are probably a few players who may progress out of out of that age group at some point. But the um, the England squad is so so set now, and so many experienced players are in their you know like mid twenties who are going to be there now for probably another five years. It's going to be quite hard to break through. But some of them are getting chances at club level, but some of that group are still are still really young. So still interesting though. Mm. In other news this week, Derby are saved. Local businessman and lifelong supporter David Clowes has come in and bought the club lock, stock and barrel, ending a saga that began when Mel Morris placed uh, them in administration back in mid-September. A successful local businessman and lifelong supporter as owner. How did that slip through, Daniel? It's absolutely the best eventuality for Derby by uh, by so much distance from the other options they were facing and the other buyers who were rumoured that there is something about big football clubs that makes me automatically assume however bad it gets, it's fine, they'll find a buyer, they'll find a buyer, they will find a buyer. And that's exactly what's happened. He's a local guy. He's reportedly paid 25% of his wealth to buy the stadium and the club. So we don't know yet in terms of moving forward whether he's just going to be a, a kind of placeholder and look to sell on the club to to another owner in the future to, if there are ambitions about getting into the Premier League. But hmm. they've already signed three or four players since he came in. Well, they have. And, and they they can start next season, um, which right. is, you know, they, they have a club, they have a stadium. This is, as I say, by so far the best scenario that, you know, they do deserve it. You know, I'm a, a fan of a rival club, but it could easily have been my club and, I'm glad that they were saved and I'm glad that they've got the option that's the best thing for supporters. All right. There are one or two issues uh, still hanging over them, not least a tax bill of, what, £30 million or so? £30 yeah. million, pounds, which is going to be an interesting test of the yes, non-football think, creditor. Exactly. Uh, I think they have to pay 25p in the pound or agree to pay 25p in the pound to avoid the points deduction that they would incur for next season. I assume that they are going to intend to do that um, because one of the, the issues with potentially the Mike Ashley bid was that the offer to the creditors was lower was so lower than that and therefore they'd have faced a points deduction this season which they could do without but yeah they now will be I know I thought they might well go down from League One and now I think they've probably got a good chance of anyone of being playoffs. Although the really pressing problem is the fact that even with those new signings they've only got about 11 players and no yeah. manager and a season starting in four weeks. I think Liam Rossinia, who's been named interim, I, I strongly suspect that, that he will take them well into the season because he was he was very hands-on under under Wayne Rooney. He's, a, he's seemingly a very bright bloke and a good coach. And it makes complete sense to, given all the other upheaval, to have some sort of continuity. Mm. Excellent. There you go. Some good news for Derby. Uh, next up, we've got some On This Day and Rafa's favourite World Cup. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Fourth of July... That's right. On this day, back in 1990, Gaza's tears. Gaza's tears. As England lost to Germany in the World Cup semi-final on 
penalties. At Flo, you weren't even a distant kind of thought in anybody's... <laughs> exactly. But I know you'll have heard all about this. Perhaps you've read Daniel's excellent book on this. I wonder what the German perspective on this iconic moment, one of the most significant bits of football for England, I think, since 66, no? Gaza blubbing on the, on, the, on the turf in Turin. It is very much a kind of snapshot in time moment of, of English football, I think. And, and for Gascoigne himself, obviously, you know, he, those tears were because that World Cup were, were like a, an extended dream sequence for him. And were the, the end of a remarkable few years of progression as a player and sadly not really as a person. You know, he, he wasn't given the tools to deal with all that pressure. And in hindsight, him crying on the pitch at getting booked and potentially missing a final that England hadn't even qualified for yet was a was an, a, a huge red flag to say we need to look after this guy. And nobody saw it being waved. Yeah, if only people working closely with him in the immediate future could have offered more support. Rafa, what are they, is that a particularly significant moment for Germany or just another victory over the English? It's not a particularly significant moment because um, it was superseded by a slightly more important moment uh, with Germany Germany winning. I mean, Germany's significant moments tend to be wins, not defeats. That's, I think, I what see. distinguishes us um, most from, from our English brethren. But um, this wasn't even a very particular good World Cup, I think, um, for, oh, for don't Germany start. Or, in, or, in, or in a neutral sense. Um, the music was great. The music was um, great. The stadiums were great. Mm. I'm sure the food was good, mm -hmm. James. But um, I think the football was actually well pretty bad throughout the well, tournament. I mean, you, you, you'll have to debate that with the likes of James Horncastle and Duncan Alexander and the many people who got enraged when I voiced the fact that some people didn't consider it a good World Cup. A lot of social media fury, rage about that. So, Rafa, not your favourite World Cup. But how about we find out which one was? Pitbull there from, well, it could have been any World Cup, really. But this one is 2014, Rafa's favourite World Cup. Brazil hosting the tournament for only the second time, following the huge disappointment of 1950, which we talked about last in our last podcast. They spent an estimated $13 billion dollars to stage the tournament, and it went, well, arguably even worse than 1950. That's 7-1 to Germany in the semi-final, and then 3-0 to Netherlands in the third, fourth playoff. Rafa, what did you like so much about a tournament that saw Germany beating Argentina 1-0 in extra time to become world champions again? Yeah, what attracted me to this to this place with the beach and uh, with, with good football and, and Germany winning, it's hard to say. I mean, usually the best World Cups tend to be the first ones, don't they? Because of that mm. nostalgia and that, that impression that it makes on you seeing World Cup football for the first time. But even more so than 82 and 86, I enjoyed 2014 because I was, A, I had the privilege of being there. B, I just thought the combination of pretty good football throughout the tournament, I would argue, uh, plus Brazil, uh, plus the weather, plus Germany winning, plus me being very emotionally connected to this team not so much uh, in an abstract sense that I want Germany as a country to win but I know and knew a lot of the players and I really felt for them and and, and wanted them to win this uh, competition desperately and and was just so happy for them just makes it a pretty special special moment right you weren't just living in Brazil you were living with Gab Marcotti and Guillaume Balaguer in Brazil wow I can only imagine well, yeah, we tend to uh, go away together for these tournaments and it was uh, it was great. The one thing I was slightly disappointed about, James, uh, but I don't think this is even controversial in Brazil, is the food in Rio mm. is actually not that good. What? Uh, I've been reliably informed that Sao Paulo is really the well, place for I mean, that's what food. the Paulistas say, but... Yeah, slight disappointment, but uh, yeah. Oh, well, it was a... You can't have it all. You can't, can you? Featured... I mean, we should talk about the semi-final because that was probably the most extraordinary World Cup game ever. Flo, you were alive for this one, I think. Checks notes. Yes. Brazil 7-1. <laughs> Just, I mean, that was... We were all agog in front of our TVs. Yeah, it felt like an alternate universe. Didn't seem real, really. A weird kind of fever dream. Um, I really did feel for 
the fans and the and the Brazilian players that day because it was heartbreaking because I mean like Raf said there's a there's an aura around Brazilian football and the culture and obviously the players throughout history and what football means to them so I think for so many people maybe obviously not the, the Germans that they were the, the neutrals choice they were the romantic choice so to see them get absolutely destroyed the, the way that they were is, is kind of heartbreaking and I also think it it made the realities of probably football in general in Brazil men's and women's national team football for the last few decades really is is so underdeveloped so underfunded and that was kind of the epitome of it is that they were going to have this huge tournament spend loads of money on it but actually the product that they were going to put forward in that tournament wasn't going to be anywhere anywhere near what the rest of international football had been gearing up for. And that was kind of heartbreaking in a way because obviously for so many fans, they were expecting so much. So that was sad. But they did sort of redeem themselves a little bit in 2016 in the Olympic Games, getting a, a tiny bit of joy. But uh, yeah, really heartbreaking. Yeah, I genuinely found it quite difficult to watch. And that's nothing about the two teams. It could have been, you know, it could have been France, Nigeria or Colombia, Uruguay or whatever. But it started, it, it became immediately incredibly good fun when Germany started scoring quickly and early. And then there was just a period of about 20 minutes where it wasn't that Germany were necessarily scoring goals. It's just that Brazil was so broken and Germany were just so unexpectedly realising that they could play this game at walking pace, this massive, this huge match at walking pace. That I actually felt it, it, almost, it was almost like cringing to watch and difficult to watch at times um wow i I don't expect rafa to share that view i mean the period was what the 20th to the 30th minute when germany completed just 25 passes but attempted six shots and scored four goals from them four goals in that 10 10 minutes i must admit I i found it incredibly thrilling this it was it was like a science fiction football game those 10 minutes just felt, it felt a bit to me like under sixes against under 12s yeah. and under 12s are trying their best but brilliant yeah yeah wow there you go rafa well it was bizarre it was bizarre were you there in belo horizonte no i was actually in rio covering the game for the bbc with tim vickery sitting next to me oh yeah uh, we're doing radio and something amazing happened because after that 5-0 there was a pause in the live commentary and they actually went back to us in the studio to see if either I or Tim had any idea of how this could be explained. And of course, I was completely lost for words and just mumbled something incoherent. Whereas Tim immediately had the explanation saying Brazil were over-aligned on emotions. It was like a bubble that burst, like a balloon that burst, all the Neymar stuff. Mm. And he, he so nailed Neymar- it. Neymar had gone out injured. I think he actually had a fractured vertebrae, you know, and they'd done this big yeah. thing where they came yeah. out with his jersey before, but perhaps more importantly, with Hulk, Fred and Joe up, up front. And no Thiago Silva as well, which I think had a bearing on, on matters. But sorry, back to you. And, and Germany, I think, exposed uh, all the fault lines in this, in this team. And they did, it, they did it so well. They did it better than anyone could have expected. And I think it was so hard to understand because everyone in the German camp and, and German journalists and everyone had sort of braced themselves for an epic encounter. You know, this is going to be sort of 1982 against France or or maybe 1990 against England, a really, really tough game that could easily go one way or the other. And of course, after a very good opening spell from Brazil, they, they played well in the first five, six minutes. Germany virtually scored from the first attack or from the second and then Brazil completely fell apart with the, with the help of... Um, David Luiz, who basically went completely headless chicken mode uh, and right. started popping up all over the pitch. But yeah, it was just, it was crazy. But it wasn't a football game as we know it. It was something mm. different. It was sort of yeah. a, a, a collapse of historic, unprecedented historic magnitude. Große Party laufen. Schölle. 7 zu 0. 7 zu 0. Doppeltorschütze nach seiner Einwechslung. Well, indeed. Well, you saw something similar some years later with, with, with Barcelona's game against Bayern Munich in the quarterfinal. And when was that? 2020 in Lisbon. Anyway, the final in 2014 was less memorable, particularly for Christoph Kramer, who got knocked unconscious in the 16th minute and then had to, and then when, when he came 
came to, he was continually asking the referee, Nicola Rizzoli, what game he was playing in. Yeah, I mean, we, we chuckle about it and luckily he, he recovered and, and wasn't affected, but he should have never been uh, on the pitch again. He was quite cynically taken out by a body check from from Igoin, I think uh, I seem to remember, onto somebody else. Uh, and you might say that Iguain got his comeuppance by being even more brutally uh, checked by uh, Manuel Neuer later on. But I disagree. I mean, okay, I was very wrapped up in this emotionally, but I thought it was a sensational final. Yes, there was only one goal, but there were lots of chances and it was a very high level, I thought. I mean, Argentina were playing to the very maximum of their ability. It was, wasn't a really fully fit Messi. It wasn't that much of an impact and there wasn't that much else around them, but they, I think they played well. And Germany had a hard time. And of course, it was settled by, again, I'm slightly biased here, but I would say the most beautiful goal scored in a final since 1970. I mean, come I up thought, with a better one and I'm, I'm willing to to listen. No, no, but no. I don't think I thought you were just going to leave it as, I thought Raph was just going to leave it as the most beautiful goal ever scored. And then just describe, describe Mario Götze's goal for us. So you've got Andre Schurlich breaking through on the left and putting in a cross, and it's sort of one of those hanging crosses that don't really go anywhere. And, and Mario Götze is the intended target, and you know that Götze is not really going to do much with it because he can't head it, and he's in full flight, and he's he's turning towards the corner. Sorry, yeah, he's turning towards the corner, towards where the ball is coming. So he's turning away from goal. But it's actually, that's just one fantastic contact with his chest that puts it in his path and then he swivels 180 degrees and then volleys it with his left foot into the into the corner just an amazingly beautiful elegant goal and a goal that kind of sums up how Germany had changed I think from from a side that wins with a penalty in 1990 and sort of grinding out results to one that can even when they weren't at their best produce absolute balletic beauty and I think it was a very fitting fitting goal to win a World Cup. There you go. Flo and Daniel, for those of us who weren't living with Gab and uh, Guillermo throughout this tournament, do do we rate this as as a really enjoyable World Cup as we look back on it? It's the World Cup that brought us water breaks for the first time ever. Goal line technology, certainly the first time in a World Cup, and vanishing spray as well. James Rodriguez, the goal against Uruguay, a similarly brilliant Perhaps even better chest and volley affair. Bite marks on Killini. Bite marks from that bug on Hammers Rodriguez, possibly. Daniel, sorry, you were about to say about Hammers. It was a brilliant World Cup. It was, to me, watching from England as I was, it, it felt like the Hammers Rodriguez World Cup. And yet, you know, everything that he did happened in the first two thirds of the tournament. Hammer Rodriguez, It was a great World Cup because it was Brazil, clearly. It was a great World Cup because there's no Vuvuzelas. Uh, and the <laughs> last one had been, genuinely had been ruined as a spectacle by that. But it also, yeah, it felt like a... I know I know this is not the case because it's documented fact, but it felt like a World Cup, a kind of end of innocence World Cup. You know, going to 2018 Russia and there were, there were problems with the awarding of that bid. Then heading into Qatar and there were problems with that. Having that last one in Brazil, and, and it feels fitting to me as from someone who of my age, born in 1985, that Germany would win it in Brazil felt like that the kind of perfect end to the last World Cup in the Age of Innocence. I know that football was not completely squeaky clean in 2014, but that's just how it felt. Wow, wait till we do the 1978 World Cup, Daniel. Love that one. <laughs> Flow. We also had Sterling's ghost goal, the one that never was, the goal against Italy yeah. that went into the top corner, but something broke in the space-time continuum and it, it just never, it just disappeared. It just disappeared and we never got to, I mean, I still celebrated it in my friend's garden and did an e-slide and I thought it was in and then I returned into the TV room about five minutes later and was baffled as to why it was still nil-nil, but... Yeah, something, some, we'll never know what really happened. Is that the fastest that England have ever exited a tournament out in two games, just six days? Yes, definitely. Yes, it was, and it was the most, somehow the most dispiriting World Cup match England played against Costa Rica in the third group stage, which was the dead rubber group stage. It was worse than Algeria in 2010. Because really? There was actually some, yeah, no. because there was some... No, nothing no. can ever be worse. <laughs> no, there was something on that game. That? 
there was something on that game that provoked angry reaction because England played badly. This was just a bad game that produced absolutely no reaction from anyone involved because, yeah, we... The, the last time England ho- fully hosted a, a major tournament themselves was the Women's Euros in 2005 and they didn't even get out of the group stages then. So um, it bodes well for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> well, that was 2014. And uh, our World Cup retros will continue, no doubt. But next up, to finish off today's totally, with cryptocurrency markets are busy tanking around the world, some interesting times ahead for football and its involvement with all this newfangled financial stuff. We'll be getting some tales from the crypto from Joey Dorso next. So the last year or so has seen an increasing involvement with cryptocurrency fan tokens and NFTs by the world of football. 19 of the Premier League's 20 sides have a fan token scheme. Players past and present have been touting NFTs and there's cryptocurrency in there too. With the values of all of these, air quotes, investments crashing massively in recent months, what's the impact going to be on football and particularly on the supporters who put their money into them? And what does the future hold? Well, Joey Dorso is investigations writer for The Athletic, and he's just done a big breakdown on the big breakdown. And he joins us now for a a tiptoe through the crypto. How much money do you think has has been lost, say, over the last season by supporters? Oh, millions and millions and millions. I mean, the money hasn't really been lost. The money has been transferred from fans to socios and to the football clubs. So Mm. to clubs, it's a great revenue stream. You know, that word in the sort of, football business jargon revenue stream it often revenue streams a good thing you know if people want to buy tickets to matches that's a revenue stream if people want to buy beers and hot dogs um you know great or buy shirts that they then wear and enjoy great but this is a revenue stream that the people aren't being left with very much um to show with but it's Mm. massive amounts of money for for clubs and for this company it's remarkable and one of the big surprises for me is the fact that even the richest say from players like leo messi who's done a 20 million a Euro deal with with Socios to clubs like PSG and Man City who are not sure of a bob have wholeheartedly embraced this. What is the positive beyond the fact that there are some incentives for fans or some some minor involvement available for fans in 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 the business of the club through the purchase of these these um, Socios coins? What rationale do the clubs use to defend this? Well, firstly, it's, it's it's money. It's money that you can use to sign new players to pay players' wages. You could theoretically use it to reduce ticket prices. I'm not sure any clubs are doing that. But um, also, I I suppose, you know, lots of people genuinely do find this world really exciting. And I think lots of players are not necessarily promoting it because it's going to make them loads of money. Lots of players, you know, young blokes, the the, the prime audience for this stuff, think it's cool and think it's exciting and think it's the future. And that that is a genuine um, feeling, I think, from lots, lots of players in particular. But it's a lot easier to find it exciting when you've got you know, huge amounts of money to play with. It's kind of right. like buying a very expensive scratch card. You know, if you buy a £5,000 NFT and it might go up 10 times, or it might go to nothing. Mm. Have any NFTs gone up 10 times from the football world? Well, certainly at the very beginning. A very common pattern is that way in the past, before any normal people, you know, like me or like anyone listening to this podcast might have heard of it, something mm. will have completely rocketed. So you look at it and you think, wow, I could become rich like that person. Then what happens is that person cashes out Right. and dumps their right. tokens, and it slowly crashes in value. So, yes, there are all sorts of things in this world that are skyrocketing. Um, you know, there'll probably be something today which will be worth far times um, the amount tomorrow, but figuring out what that is is very difficult. So sure. you're far more likely to be the mug um, who picks up something a bit too late than you are to um, get on the new wave of the new token. I mean, if you can do that, then good luck to you. Great. Mm. The whole thing has been compared to a giant series of pyramid schemes. So what do you think the future is going to be, say, over the next year or so for all these these various forms of crypto financial involvement? Well, I, th- I think it's a massive danger for all these companies that the prices keep going down. I, I, I was at a panel discussion the other day where the boss of Socios was there. You know, I've always dealt very cordially with them in my exchanges and they responded to me. And I asked him, you know, what's the end game? Because uh, I don't see if this, these things keep declining what what happens? I mean, their argument is that um, it doesn't matter if it declines because you're getting utility, you're being able to vote on things, you're being able to being an engaged fan. Um, I personally don't buy that argument at all. 
But, um, you know, let's see. Maybe the tokens will recover and um, the, the, the price won't be an issue. But certainly the opposite is happening at the moment. And it's all only going in one direction. Joe, in, in your research for, for this and, and the kind of months you've been working on, on covering all of this, what, what, what have been the biggest shocks to you? I think it's that clubs fundamentally don't care about... They always use this phrase due diligence, but I've done a lot of work also on, on gambling, not just gambling companies, but gambling companies from Far East Asia where we have no idea who is running them. Mm. And the word due diligence comes up a lot, but frankly, I think the only thing they look for is, is it legal? And if so, they'll take the money. Which is okay, but it'd be better if people just said that. And this stuff is is perfectly legal because there aren't really any laws governing cryptocurrency and NFTs at the moment. Yeah, I mean, another thing that just shocked me is how how, how players um, don't see how this looks bad, looks odd. I mean, I think bad is the wrong word because I think most people don't know about cryptocurrencies. Hmm. I think it looks odd. I think you see your player saying, buy this weird thing for 500 quid that's a picture of someone um, wearing a sort of non-branded T-shirt so they don't infringe any intellectual property laws. It just looks weird and there's loads of rage and people, it just seems incredibly obvious from a fan's perspective, from a journalist's perspective that this looks, you know, it's different. There's all sorts of controversial sponsors um, around, but it's quite clear what the value is to a fan or what the product, you know, talk about fizzy drinks, which are bad for you, um, but people enjoy or, or gambling companies, which, you know, there's lots of valid criticisms of, but lots of people enjoy gambling. This stuff, these funny pictures of, of monkeys, you know, what people look at it and just think, what, what on earth? And, they're just transferring money from fans to to wealthy footballers and to rich clubs. And people really don't get it when they first see it. And I think the more that people learn, the more angry people are, which is the opposite of what a lot of the advocates of this stuff will tell you, which is that just we need more education. You know, people have got more educated and people hate it even more in my, mm. in my perspective. Is there any way this doesn't all end in a big mess then? I'd, I, I've, having spent months looking into it, I, I fail to see so, but... You know, I might be wrong and people who think I'm wrong might make a hell of a lot of money. So good luck to them. Joey Dorso, and you can read the um, pretty troubling uh, breakdown of clubs and their involvement with tokens and currency, etc. on The Athletic. And the I have done a big thing on this as, as well. I know, um, Daniel, it's not a uniquely English problem by any means. City is actually sponsored by crypto website thing. Mm. Wow. There you go. That brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. We return on Thursday with the reaction to England, Austria, and so much more. For now, though, it's many thanks to Rafa, Daniel, and Flo for being with us today. Flo, enjoy your trip to Old Trafford. Thank you. I will. I'll try. Mm. And Daniel, you're heading along there as well? I am indeed, yes. Excellent. Rafa, maybe you can get Guillaume and uh, Gab round <laughs> for some disappointing uh, churrasco. Well, we, I will be going out to Qatar with um, Guillaume and James Horncastle as there you Gabriele Makoti stand-in. Because <laughs> um, sadly, Gabriele is, is uh, elsewhere. Mm. But yeah, that should be fun. Excellent. Very, very good. Uh, listener, hope you enjoy yourself too. We'll see you on Thursday from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.